Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Heather Moday is a board-certified allergist and immunologist, as well as an integrative and functional medicine physician. After years of working as an allergist and an immunologist in private practice, she completed a fellowship in integrative medicine at the Arizona Center of Integrative Medicine in Tucson, and became certified by the Institute for Functional Medicine. Today, I'm excited to chat about her new must-read book titled The Immunotype Breakthrough, your personalized plan to balance your immune system, optimize health, and build lifelong resilience. Heather, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Great to be here again. So great to have you. I I can't imagine a better topic to discuss given what's going on in the world. (laughs) In, Absolutely. In, in 2021, we're recording this on November 17th, but it's going to air in, in mid-December. And I don't think much will change with regards to the immune system. But, you know, we're not necessarily in a good place. And you start the book by sharing some really compelling, eye-opening, horrifying statistics. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some of them off. 48% of Americans suffer from some form of cardiovascular disease, everything from high blood pressure to heart failure. And you say 34 and a half million Americans are diagnosed with type one diabetes. And that number swells to over a hundred million when we count those living with prediabetes or those who have undiagnosed diabetes or unaware that they have it. Obesity, 42.4% in 2018. So who knows how high it is today. Alzheimer's affects 6 million today, but expected to reach 15 million by 2050. Mm -hmm. Then anxiety disorders and depression affecting 18 and a half percent of the population. And that was pre pandemic. So who knows how, yeah, who knows how high those numbers are right now, but I think suffice to say, they are certainly higher. I think everyone would agree. And then 45.8% of Americans have used prescription drugs in the last 30 days. Again, that's a little bit old. Who knows how high it is today? And and it, prescription drugs save lives. I'm not against prescription drugs, but it feels a little high to me. You, I could go on and on with all the, the data you have, but I won't. So I, I'm going to pause there. Right? <laughs> it, it is depressing, and, and we'll close on a high note, hopefully. Yeah. But in, in your opinion, what, what's driving this? It's a few things. You know, I talk about how you know we used to have really mostly sort of infectious diseases driving our health problems. And not to say that we're out of that. (laughs) We're not out of that jungle yet, as you know, as COVID has shown us. However, for the most part, you know, we have these chronic diseases, which are, you know, we live with, but they certainly make our life uh, much, much more miserable and lead us into taking all these medications. And I think Really what's been, what drives that is our change in lifestyle for sure. You know, although we, you know, we have better access to healthcare, we have, you know, medications and things like that. We live differently. We eat differently. We sleep differently. So I think that, you know, food for one, and there's plenty of data on this and plenty of documentaries and lots of data about how we are eating processed food, how our food is like highly caloric and highly palatable. We overeat, we under exercise, we under move. 
So we're sedentary. Our stress levels are higher. Our connection to people is low. You know, we're more isolated. We're tied to technology. You know, so many different things that drive us to be unhealthy. And I think that has really driven, you know, sort of the explosion in these chronic diseases. And then, of course, you know, our environment, too. I mean, there's you, know, you can go back and forth on this, but we live in a very toxic, on a toxic planet. And so that definitely affects our body as well. And basically what it drives us to do is to become more inflamed. And so what role does our immune system play in all this? I'll segue to chronic inflammation and how the two are interrelated. Yeah. So, you know, our immune system is always trying to protect us. <laughs> It's always trying to protect us from both what is outside, you know, trying to harm us like, you know, bacteria and viruses, parasites, et cetera. But also it reacts to, you know, chemicals that we're ingesting, that we're touching, inflammatory foods. So foods that are causing a reaction in the body that the immune system then has to, to go and repair. And so, you know, as the process, you know, it's sort of this double-edged sword I talk about in the book that the immune system comes to our rescue and creates inflammation in an effort to put out a fire, right? To either kill something and then to repair tissue. And, and most people can relate to this if you've ever sprained an ankle or, you know, cut yourself or had strep throat or whatever. Then in the initial, you know, inflammatory reaction, you're pretty miserable, right? Like your ankle's swollen, it hurts, your throat hurts, your the cut on your hand is oozy and pussy and whatever. So there's that acute inflammation. But then that should resolve, right? Because the insult is over, right? The insult is over. Resolution starts. The pain, the swelling goes away. And then we're back to normal. Voila. But if we continue to have insults on our body, so if we continue to eat, say, processed food and excess sugar, or if we continue to stay up really late at night and not get enough sleep, or we continue to be sedentary and gain weight, which is inflammatory, then it's, it never goes away. And so the immune system is in this like constant activation, hyperactivation, constantly trying to put out a fire in order to protect us. And that's what creates this ongoing, you know, inflammatory response. For a lot of people, the next question is going to be, all right, I'm sold on our immune system, obviously, and the need to develop immune resilience and have a strong immune response. Mm -hmm. and, and how do we do so? And what you do in the book is you've come up with these four immunotypes. So you've got the, the smoldering immunotype, the misguided immunotype, the hyperactive, and then the weak. Mm -hmm. So can you walk us through each one of these to help us understand which group we potentially fall sure, into? Yeah. And then what, what should we do? Absolutely. So, you know, and, and this was sort of born out of this idea was born out of really what I see on a daily basis. So, you know, as an immunologist, that's not all that I see. Obviously, that's my training. I see people who come in with, with allergies, people who come in with chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, people come in with autoimmune disease, or people that just come in and say like, hey, you know, like I'm, I'm sick all the time. Like I cannot shake a cold or I constantly get sinus infections and I don't know what's going on. What I realized is that, you know, our immune system sort of works not on a linear, you know, sort of scale. It really is multidimensional, right? And what happens below the surface is really important in terms of like the actual cells involved are really important as to 
how a disease looks on the surface or what kind of symptoms we get. So for example, smoldering. Smoldering is really anyone who has chronic inflammation that is not resolving. So this could be people who are diabetic. So we know that chronically elevated sugar, blood sugar levels cause damage to our blood vessels. And that is what, you know, and that of course is activating our immune system all the time. Same with cardiovascular disease. You can also have smoldering inflammation, right? If you're suffering from a chronic infection and if you have autoimmune disease. So it really sort of underlying a lot of the other immunotypes. But for the most part, people who just have a smoldering immunotype don't have these other disease processes going on. They're just chronically inflamed. Then people who have a misguided immunotype are really people who, whose immune system have, has become confused and sort of has turned on them. So instead of tolerating their own tissue or their own cells, they have targeted or uh, become confused or misguided so that they start the, you know, the cells start to attack our own tissue. So this happens in autoimmune disease. So it can be anything from autoimmune thyroid disease, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, you name it, doesn't really matter. And then people who have a hyperactive immune response, this is basically a reaction against things that might be outside of the body, but they're all harmless. So, you know, our immune system cells really are trained to see things that are going to harm us. So this could be a bacteria or virus or something that's going to, you know, damage our cells and potentially kill us. But, you know, something like tree pollen really is not something that's going to take us down and is part of our natural environment. But because of certain triggers um, and certain underlying things, people develop antibodies against relatively harmless things like peanuts and, you know, other cat dander, things like that. So those are people who have a lot of chronic allergies. And then lastly, the weak immunotype really are people who, you know, they may not necessarily have allergies. They may not have autoimmune disease. But they have problems mounting a strong immune response against, you know, things that they need to have an immune response against. So, for example, viruses, parasites, anything that potentially could harm them. And this could be something that is acquired, obviously, or something that comes through poor nutrition, chronic stress, lots of things that can actually weaken our white blood cells, our ability to make antibodies. And so that's sort of another type. And there is crossover between them. How do we know if we're walking around and we feel pretty healthy, suffice to say, our immune system is where we want it to be? Or, you know, are there instances of people who are walking around who feel pretty good, but mm -hmm. when you dig deeper, when you do labs, you know, maybe something is off. You know, I'm curious, mm -hmm. what should we look for? How should we feel? And if we want to go deeper and do some labs, what lab work should we do if you had to generalize? Yeah, sure. You know, you can actually get a lot of information just by going to your primary care doctor and asking for a couple of things. You know, you can start with just a complete blood count, which may be completely normal in most people, but sometimes you'll see some clues with that, you know, sort of how high are your white blood cells, you know, and looking at the individual white blood cells, sometimes they'll be a little bit off. I always recommend that people get a, a test called C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein is, I would say it's a, not a super specific test, but it can indicate increase of certain what are called cytokines. So these sort of inflammatory messengers that, that our white blood cells use to communicate. And C-reactive protein can be elevated in lots of different diseases. Another thing potentially to look at is just to look at things like 
blood sugar, right? So we know that a lot of people who have sort of, you know, diabetes that is not diagnosed or pre-diabetes can be walking around with elevated blood sugar and it, they don't feel anything, right? They don't know it. So you can ask for an insulin level. You can get what's called a hemoglobin A1C, which is sort of a look back at, at blood sugar. A, another marker is homocysteine, which can be elevated indicating Chronic inflammation can also be genetic too, but that can be a, that it, into it itself can be inflammatory. So those are just some things, you know, to sort of like baseline to ask your doctor to look at, to see if there's a problem. Yeah. Homocysteine is one I've, I've talked frequently about on the show since my homocysteine, I have the MTHFR gene. It was sky mm -hmm. high. It was 63 and I got it down to between 12 and 15. It's still a little bit high, but mm -hmm. it's a hell of a lot better than 63. Oh yeah. And and that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Just there's just through a cocktail of B vitamins. And it, it's one of those, I'm glad you mentioned it. And I've said this so many times in the show, I'll say it again. Homocysteine flies under the radar for so many people. Yeah. And if it, they, they essentially so many people have the MTHFR gene, yep. they, they stop looking like it, 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 it's like basically everyone has, not everyone, but almost half mm -hmm. the population has the gene. So you, you should really check your homocysteine to make sure it's healthy. Yeah. And you know what? Um, Medicare uh, doesn't cover it. Of course. Well, I, if they do, it's ridiculously expensive. And so, and it's a really incredibly inexpensive test to get. So I always tell people, if you can get a cash pay for that, it's definitely worth it because you're right. You wouldn't know because you don't feel it, right? You don't feel and anything, yeah. You don't feel anything. And it can happen because it is, you know, like you said, sometimes genetic that you have it. So it's really important. And I feel the same way about insulin. I'm a, I call it the canary in the coal mine because a lot of people have totally normal blood sugar because your blood sugar goes up and down throughout the day. So if you fast overnight, it looks fine the next day. But your insulin can stay elevated. And if you are starting to creep up to that insulin resistance, what everyone, you know, throws that term around. I mean, I've seen people with insulin levels of 30. And your insulin should be, I mean, ideally you want it to be below five, but wow. you know, and they're like, oh, I'm not diabetic. And they have totally normal blood sugar. I'm like, oh yeah, you may not be diabetic per se right now, but you are, you're walking into that, you know, very quickly. So there's a lot of that. And then I also, you know, in the book, I created some quizzes to give people an idea of, do they have any certain risk factors or symptoms that might put them into one of these immunotypes. Because it is sometimes hard to know, like you said, that if you don't have, you know, if you don't have access to certain lab tests. So can you briefly share maybe one or two for each? Sure. Yeah. So in terms of the smoldering, you know, we sort of talked about the the C-reactive protein. So that's a, a big test to look at there. But also, do you have any of, you know, sort of the the harm hallmarks that you could see? Like, so some of the diseases, like, for example, do you have prediabetes? Do you have, do you have a, a BMI that's up in the obese range? Do you have a, a history of gout? So that's, you know, a disease that someone with a smoldering immunotype would have or diabetes or heart disease. So those are all some, you know, hypertension. Those would be sort of put you into that category. In terms of the misdirected is have you, do you have a history of a thyroid problem? Because a lot of times when people go to their doctors and they're told that they have a thyroid issue, they're never told that it might be autoimmune, but about 90% of thyroid problems are autoimmune. So I always say like, well, ask your doctor to, to check your thyroid um, autoantibodies. Do you have certain um, do you have flare-ups in any symptoms with stress? And that can happen with autoimmune disease, which can indicate sometimes someone with a misguided immunotype. 
Do you have issues like in your family with autoimmune disease? Because there tends to be a very strong familial uh, tendency that runs uh, in families for autoimmunity. In terms of, you know, hyperactive, you know, basically, do you sneeze? Do you have seasonal year-round allergies? Do you have a history of asthma? Do you break out in hives randomly? And then for weak is, you know, big risk factors are have you or do you take steroids at all? You know, orally, do you take anything like that? Have you ever taken any immunosuppressive medications? Do you get frequent colds? Do you commonly get food uh, poisoning or diarrhea when you travel? So those are just some things um, that stand out from the quizzes. Got it. You mentioned antibodies and... We tend not to talk about COVID here because we could just talk about it all day long, every day. So so we tend to stay away from it. But I'd be remiss not to ask you something given you're an immunologist and there's a discussion around vaccine mandates. They're rolling out vaccines to children. Full disclosure, I'm fully vaccinated. And there's also an interesting study out there with regards to natural immunity in Israel and natural immunity providing a significant level of protection to those mm-hmm. who've recovered and also the data or lack thereof of those recovered from COVID and infecting people. And so with that said, now bear with me as I try to make this point, let's pretend we have a point system. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big rewards person in terms of frequent flyer miles and, <laughs> and hotels. So let's pretend we have a reward system and let's say, for example, you know, one dose of, of a vaccine is, is 10 points. Second dose is another 10 points. And let's say you get a booster, you know, that's another 10 points. You get a maximum of 30 points. Shouldn't natural immunity be worth something? And that seems to be a discussion that no one is willing to have, mm-hmm. or at least there's, I'll just pause there. Shouldn't natural, sure. if we're, if we have a point system. And there's a maximum of 30 points. Shouldn't there be a valuation, a point valuation in terms of natural immunity? I'll I'll pause there. It's got to be worth something. At least that's what I think. Absolutely. Yes. I, I, I would agree with you. I, you know, I think that, you know, it's a very hot topic, right? And there are obviously people in the camp that believe that there's no role for vaccines and that if you develop COVID-19 and you survive, you should have a robust immunity towards it. I think the issue is that we haven't really tested that out, you know, so we don't have great statistics on whether that's true or not. We've also seen that some people can get COVID, right, actually be sick with it and then get it again. But we don't know about that individual. We don't know what their individual immune system's like. And we also don't have numbers on that. I would say it's probably rare, but, you know, again, I can't say for sure because I don't think that we have any long-term studies. And, but if you just think about infectious disease and the way the immune system works in general for not all viruses, but for most viruses, if you get through the initial infection and your B cells, which are the, these are the lymphocytes, white blood cells that actually are directed to make antibodies against a infectious agent like like a viral um, infection like COVID, you should have COVID antibodies. You know, so when you get exposed again, you should be able to rapidly, you know, sort of release 
these antibodies that then go glob on to the viral particle and uh, alert the rest of the immune system to take it down before it takes over. Now, obviously, this is highly individual, <laughs> depending on what else is going on and how healthy you are in general. But yeah, I agree. Of course, you can't throw natural immunity out. I mean, we have natural immunity to so many viruses. I mean, it's, it's tons. And really, the problem is that we don't have the data. And I think initially, we didn't want to play around with this too much because there were too many people dying. Because you don't want to say, hey, let's just all get the, you know, let's all get this infection when you have that many people dying. But yeah, it's definitely, you can't throw out natural immunity. I mean, you know, it's very important. No, you, you can't, especially now, millions of people around the world have gotten COVID, whether they eventually got the vaccine or they decided not to. It just, to me, it seems silly not to recognize that they actually endured and got through. COVID. Yeah, and I, you know, I've, I know of these studies that you're talking about. I would love to see a really well done long-term study of people who, for whatever reason, did not get or were not able to access a vaccine, what are the level of their antibodies and versus people who have had vaccinations, never had the natural. And then maybe people who had COVID and then had a vaccine booster. It would just be really interesting to look at the comparison of this. Yeah, I agree. Maybe someone from the CDC is listening. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's in the works. I'm sure <laughs> it's in the works. Um, yeah, and then also long-haul COVID. Gosh, you know, yeah. Anecdotally, I've heard stories from other functional medicine doctors we both know, and, and it's real. And, oh, and it's there are very some people real. really suffering. And so there's, I come back to the larger point of there's just so much we do not know. Mm -hmm. We are living through a giant experiment for the unvaccinated, for the vaccinated, for those who've had COVID, for mm -hmm. long-haul COVID, there's just, it is such an unknown, so. Yeah, and you know, the long-haul COVID is very interesting as well because people are oftentimes relatively healthy. They get through without any problems. And then sometimes they actually have a period of time they feel relatively well. And then what happens is they start having symptoms later. And what that reminds me of too is a phenomena that we've been talking about in functional medicine for a long time is that viruses are sometimes the underlying cause of autoimmune issues. And part of this is likely autoimmune in nature. And because we know that this particular strain of coronavirus does targets brain, you know, so that's a lot of people are having mood issues, cognitive problems, you know, chronic brain fog, depression, anxiety, et cetera. It's pretty scary. You know? It is scary, completely different, but it reminds me of those suffering from Lyme disease. Yep. Mm -hmm. And Epstein-Barr virus too. Yeah. We'll, we'll close the COVID door, no more <laughs> COVID. But, but building off of COVID, uh, you talk about this in the book. C can we talk a little about T-cells? And, and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll segue to T-cells. So one of the, one of the things I, I'm very interested in is, you know, building off of COVID, th there's a test out there, T-cell Protect. I had William Lee in the podcast. Mm -hmm. Just interesting, you know, because the antibody tests aren't accurate. If you really want to know if you had COVID, you get a T-cell test, but, but then we don't know how the T-cell tests uh, interact with those who have been vaccinated. So it's like, sure, we just, yeah. again, we don't know, but I'll come back to T-cells. Can you talk a little bit about T-cells and the role they play in our immune system and our immune response and, and why they're so critical, just a primer on T-cells. Sure, yeah, so T-cells are, you know, they're part of our white blood cells. They're the other, what we call lymphocytes. The other ones are called B-cells. And they are part of what we call the, like the adaptive immune response. And so it's, 
It's sort of a higher level part of the immune system that is extremely important. So I like to, I think I call them the generals of the immune system because they're, you know, when we're presented with an infection, we have all these other cells that usually try to take it out, right? And, you know, doesn't really have to bring on the adaptive immune response. But if it does, it has to bring, you know, has to bring the particle of viral particle or bacteria to our T cells. And then the T cells really have to decide what to do with it. Okay. So they can really specifically hone in on, okay, do we need to create an antibody to it? And if that's the case, the T cells interact with the B cells and make antibodies. But also T cells can kill things themselves. And so you have this whole arm that are called, you know, killer T cells. And then you also have a whole arm that are called helper T cells. And the helper T cells are really fascinating too because they act differently depending on what they are exposed to. And so those T cells actually will then create different cytokine profiles, which create different kinds, recruit other cells. And so it gets very um, granular when you start talking about T cells. And they're super important for, for immunotypes as well, like which types are more prevalent in people who have allergies and which types are more prevalent in people who have autoimmune disease. But yeah, I think that we're learning more and more about T cells, but specifically the way that they, what we call polarize into, or the way they sort of uh, proliferate really changes how our immune system, which direction it's going into. So it's fascinating. It is fascinating, as is GALT, something you mentioned in the book. <laughs> you say tent, tend to your GALT, and GALT is gut-associated lymphoid tissue. Yes. So yes. can you give us a primer on GALT and why it's so critical? Yeah. So, you know, I, I sort of say this in the beginning of the book is like our immune system is like everywhere and nowhere, sort of. It's, it's just, it's, we have cells that float around. We have cells that are anchored to our tissue and our lungs and our skin, et cetera. But we do have areas in the body where we have extremely large collections of immune cells. And one of those places is in this area called the GALT, which if you took like an electron microscope and you cut the gut, you know, if you cut the intestinal wall in half, you'd see the intestinal cells. And then sort of right beyond that, before you get into the bloodstream, you have these big, you know, areas of lymphoid tissue or almost like lymph nodes. And most people can understand lymph nodes because they feel them in their neck when they get swollen, et cetera. But we have them in our gut too. And it's actually a very large area where we have large amounts of, um, of T cells and B cells and other types of immune cells hanging out because we sort of sample the world through our gut. Everything that we eat or drink or sniff in or swallow, because people forget that when we breathe things in, yes, it does go down into the stomach and into the small intestine. And so we're constantly seeing this barrage of like everything that's coming through, like, okay, it's, you know, it's a virus, it's a parasite, it's a heavy metal, it's, it's a wheat molecule, whatever. And we have to decide what to do with this information. Our immune system is right there to, to protect us because if it sees something that comes across, and actually we have immune cells uh, that are called dendritic cells that can actually put their little, I call it like a starfish tentacle, like in between the cells into the small intestinal lumen and actually sample and bring it back. It's quite amazing. It can say like, oh my gosh, we have to do something. And, and you can have an inflammatory response, send out you know, cytokine mes messages, recruit other 
immune cells to say like, we've got a problem, you know, we've got an infection, we've got something going on. It's really interesting. And, and this is where we're seeing this interaction between say like the gut and the brain, you know, neuroinflammation, there's a gut skin access. So you can have eczema and, and all sorts of inflammatory reactions in the skin coming from, you know, the gut. It's really like the CIA. It's just, it's pretty cool. Everywhere and nowhere. Everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Building off of the gut and the food we eat, I think we all got the memo, avoid processed foods, avoid yeah. sugar. What are some of the foods we should be loading up on to strengthen our immune system that should be part of our weekly grocery list? Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, there are some obvious players, right? Um, antioxidants, number one. And there's lots of antioxidants, right? But, you know, there's antioxidants are basically substances, vitamins, et cetera, in foods that we eat that can squelch free radicals. And free radicals are things that damage our tissue that can cause disease, aging, cancer, et cetera. And it's pretty easy to get these things. But ones that we know play a big uh, role are ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. That's why you see it on all these formulations for cold and flu, et cetera. And it's also in skincare lines now for the obvious reason. So that's a big one. Zinc is another one. There are some less obvious ones I talk about, like people don't think about vitamin A, but it's actually a pretty big antioxidant. It also can help people with autoimmune disease because it does calm down some cytokines. Other ones would be vitamin D is, it is an antioxidant, but it does other things too. So it's really an immune modulator. So it can actually go into our cell nuclei and turn genes on and off that can either downregulate or upregulate immune responses. One thing that's been in the news, <laughs> pretty big one, is glutathione. Glutathione is something that people have been going crazy with. It is something that we make in our liver, both to help us with detoxification of lots of toxins, but in unto itself, it's an antioxidant. It's very powerful in the lungs against respiratory infections. And so, you know, there has been some data and studies looking at glutathione for respiratory infections, including COVID. So those are just like some big ones. One that I really impress upon and just I really think that people don't get enough of is omega-3 fatty acids because a lot of people don't eat fish. And if you don't eat fish, you're really not getting a lot. I mean, there are vegan sources, but you really have to be very, you have to be you have to make it a point, right, to get those sources. You have to have the algae. You can get some omega-6s that can convert to omega-3s. But those, I think, are super important for inflammation and for putting out fires and for preventing damage to blood vessels and brain, et cetera. So those are like some big ones. I mean, there's a lot more. I talk about a whole category of what are called polyphenols. Uh, that come from lots of fruits and vegetables, which I think are extremely uh, important to have and can just supercharge your immune system. Um, well, I love, obviously, I love vitamins, minerals, and supplements, and everything you named is basically in our ultimate multivitamin. I uh, know. And our, our, our omega-3, which is about to launch any day. Oh, uh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. I have your multivitamin. It is fantastic. It's got all those things. And we've got omega-3, which is going to launch any day by the time people are listening to this. Mm -hmm. Maybe out there already. But besides, everyone knows they love supplements. Besides that, let, let's specifically talk about food. Mm -hmm. You know, what are some of those powerhouse foods that we should just try to incorporate into our diet? So I would say the big one, and this is sort of going back to the gut, is because the immune system and that gall, that interaction between our immune system and what is going on inside of our digestive tract, if you could focus on one thing, and I would say focus on fiber. 
we don't eat enough fiber. I mean, everyone knows we don't eat enough fiber. We, we're always constantly talking about like eating more protein and, you know, low carb and eating more healthy fats, which I think, you know, obviously is great. But if you really want to do yourself a favor, look at how much fiber you're getting in on a daily basis. Like just, just use one of those trackers for a week and actually look at it because I've done that before. And sometimes I'm like, oh my God, like I only got, you know, I don't know, 15 grams of fiber today, which would be unusual for me because I love my veggies. But, you know, sometimes you just sort of forget or you just have a couple of off days. And then if people, you know, depending on how they eat, they just may not get it. So, and the reason why is that fiber feeds our microbiome, you know, it feeds those bacteria that live in our gut. And if those, if they're not fed well and they're not healthy, they're not going to proliferate. They're not going to be able to do their job in helping us regulate um, our immune response. So I would say that is a, that's a really important one. I would say that if, if you can, in terms of those polyphenols, eating those very like highly pigmented foods that have those naturally in them, like green tea is a perfect a perfect example. That's got something called EGCG, very long name. Um, but that's really helpful for modulating our immune response. Quercetin, which has also gotten a lot of talk lately, is found in lots of things like onions and garlic and apples. So you can eat those things. Blueberries, all the berries has, you know, anthocyanins, olive oil, very high in polyphenols, and even coffee. You know, coffee can be really great. So, you know, if you really can focus on getting, you know, eating from the rainbow, having those highly pigmented foods with these polyphenols, that's a really sort of good thing to look at. And coming back to fiber, because I think it's such an important point, what are your favorite fiber-rich foods that you try to incorporate into your diet that you would recommend? Yeah. So I think that, you know, you can sort of be like the lazy fiber person, which I think is fine. So for example, I love flaxseed and it's great to put on you know, if you're like, I'm running, I'm really busy today, I'm just going to take like a tablespoon of flax and throw it into my smoothie or throw it onto my salad or whatever. I love flax. I like chia seed, which also has some good benefits for satiety. There's a lot of starches, like resistant starches that are really great too. So a lot of the tuberous sort of like root vegetables. So, you know, you can do things like yucca. I love even things like sweet potatoes, purple potatoes, parsnips, any like the root veggies can be really great. So I would say those are like my favorites. I also love avocados and raspberries, which are surprisingly high in fiber. Look, I'm an optimist. I'm hoping we're coming out of COVID and this will be it and we'll move on. Maybe maybe I've got rose-colored glasses on, but I also think about the superbug mm, and yeah. specifically the antibiotic resistant superbug, which I think was more top of mind pre-COVID and then mm -hmm. COVID happened and it's a different you know, it's pandemic, obviously. Yeah. How do you think about the threat of the antibiotic resistant superbuck? I would agree with you. And I think that it has been overshadowed by, by COVID because prior to this, we were seeing in the news things like what was called methicillin um, uh, resistant strep. So our staph, I'm sorry, staphylococcus. So that was a big problem. Obviously, uh, a lot of C. difficile or C. diff causing actual deaths in people who were elderly and taking antibiotic, high potency antibiotics. And I mean, I have some patients who have had severe C. diff and they're young because they took 
a broad spectrum antibiotic a few times for a sinus infection or a, a tooth infection. And now some of the stool tests that are run, you know, that we run, they can actually look at anti antibiotic resistant genes in people's microbiomes, which is fascinating because I see patients that have several antibiotic resistant genes going on in their gut, which means that they've been exposed and their some of their microbes have become resistant to certain antibiotics. And that's really scary because, you know, you get to a point that if you don't have, with our great technology, if you don't have a way to kill these bugs, they just get stronger and stronger. And the more we take more broad spectrum antibiotics, ones that, you know, extremely powerful and they're given for no reason, like they're given when people have minor infections or viral infections, we're eventually going to run out of magic bullets. So it's, that's still a big problem. Yeah, it's scary. And also a lot of these new, and look, antibiotics save lives. It, it, however, they're definitely over prescribed to your point, you know, sinus infection versus something that's life threatening. Mm-hmm. I remember going to, to my doctor, Frank Ludman, I would get these vicious sinus infections, like really bad. I was like, Frank, you got to give me something. I have to get in an airplane. Like right, I'm about right, to yeah. fly, which is like, it ex- you feel like your head's going to explode with the altitude of your sinus infection. He was like, Here's, I, he said, I've never prescribed. And he gave me a cocktail of supplements and then it took a couple of days, but they went away and he was right. So, but with that said, you know, bringing this back to antibiotics, antibiotic resistance, I find it also interesting that, you know, and this is what I think. I hope people realize is so many of, of the great discoveries with regards to antibiotics, with, mm-hmm. with regards to pharmaceuticals come from the environment. Yeah. Come from newly discovered uh-huh. herbs or plants that sure. are found in the Amazon. Yes. The rainforest, which is the being, rainforest. You know, exactly. And so if we bring it back full circle, we're my buddy green here, you know, climate change and what we're doing to the world has a bigger effect than just hurricanes, tornadoes, and fires, which are all obviously devastating. It also helps develop products that can potentially save our lives. Yeah. And I, I do think that there's a lot of things that we we have not really capitalized on and, you know, people around the world have been using for years. And I one of my favorite subjects is mushrooms. And I think that is a untapped reservoir because there's so many there's so many different species in the, the fungi family. It's actually larger than the bacterial family. And people in China and most, a lot of the East have been using medicinal mushrooms to, to basically battle infections and then also to improve immunity. And obviously it's very popular now. There's lots of products out there, lots of mushroom products, some better than others. But I'm really happy to see that there's a lot more research in that area and that people are developing that. Because, you know, you can grow mushrooms almost anywhere. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's pretty I, incredible, like some of the mushroom farms out there and what they're growing. It's like, whoa, it's it's amazing. So what's your most underrated mushroom we should all <gasps> take a look at? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I love so many of them. Well, I would say underrated I don't know if it's underrated because I think people talk about it a lot. I would say maybe reishi. Now, reishi is something, though, that generally you can only take in supplement form because it's a woody, inedible mushroom. So I I would have to say 
if I had to pick my favorite mush, two favorite mushrooms, one is maitake, also known as hen of the wood. It's delicious and it makes a great taco. It's really good for your immune system. So it, it boosts a lot of, you know, I would say increases in immune response, boosts it. The other big favorite of mine, which is a little bit more indirect and it's really, I think, used more for sort of neurologic support, neuronal support, brain support, and that is lion's mane mushroom. Slightly harder to find, but great, really delicious. We can find a lot at farmer's markets. But yeah, I think that's like an untapped area because, you know, you can really set up a farm and grow them yourself. Pretty interesting. Yeah. So reishi, lion's mane, and head of the woods. Yes. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Well, I think they're just good for everyone. It's one of those things that's probably, it's going to help regardless of where you're at in your health journey. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you can't really go wrong uh, with eating those. They're not, I mean, that, and what you were just saying is like, when you're getting something that's a natural uh, substance, it is, it's like balancing, right? Like you're not going to throw yourself off balance by having too many, you know, servings of hen of the woods mushrooms. You know what I mean? You're not <laughs> going to like, it's not like taking an antibiotic or, you know, and, you know, they have their own benefits with fiber. So. So I'm curious, what was the biggest surprise for you when you were researching the book? What Was there some data that just jumped out on you? Curious, what was surprising while doing the research? You know, I think that even though I am in this world all the time, just some of the, some of the data about the diseases was pretty amazing. And I think that especially the one about how many, how much time or percentage of time in an office visit or doctors are spending with their patients is about prescribing medication. It's about 70%, which 70% of office visits are just for prescribing or managing medication. To me, that is, I like, mind-blowing because... I mean, that it sort of makes me sad because as a physician that I, you know, like that my entire career or the people being trained right now is that's what they're focusing their time on. And it makes me think like, well, why did you bother learning anything else in medical school if you're just going to prescribe drugs? So that I thought was, that was pretty sad and surprised even me for sure. Look, COVID's terrible. I'm an optimist. So I'll say COVID was terrible. Hopefully Mm -hmm. we're, we're coming out of this. You know, so many people, too many people lost their lives. It's been devastating for people. We have a mental health crisis. A lot of businesses are still struggling. It's, it's God awful. With all that said, I'm an optimist. You know, perhaps the CDC is listening. Perhaps there will be a point system and, and those with the natural <laughs> antibodies will get some points and our developed point system. But I'm curious, you know, given what you do, are you optimistic? You know, have we learned anything from COVID? What do you hope will come out of this with regards to our immune system and how we think of it and how we live our lives? You know, let's close on a high note because we, we <laughs> open with the Debbie Downer, those statistics. Oh, wow, they're bad. Right, so yeah. let's close on a high note. What, what is your hope? So I think that, you know, the thing about COVID is that it really sort of hit us all across the board. I mean, I know that obviously some people were more affected. And I think that taught us one lesson. So that's one lesson we learned is in the beginning when people were initially dying in the hospital, it was disproportionately 
not just people who were older, but people who had chronic diseases, right? So they had diabetes, they had lung disease, they had obesity, et cetera. And that was a wake up call because it was like, okay, wow, I'm at risk. Like I am not get, my immune system is so busy taking care of all this other inflammation in my body. It can't, it can't handle this virus, right? I'm getting, so that was, I think that might've motivated people to take better care of themselves, exercise more, sleep better. So I think that was one thing that's come out of this. But I think also that because this was such a baffling virus for physicians, it was like, you know, we haven't seen anything like this really. I think it's sort of made people start looking outside the box, right? So what other things can we be doing, not just masking up and using hand sanitizer and getting vaccines, which obviously have their role, but, you know, what are things that we need to focus on? Are there some other natural things that we should be doing? Like all of a sudden people, because there were legit articles coming out about vitamin D deficiency and how it affected outcomes in COVID, like it did, it affected, you had poor outcomes if you had low vitamin D. So stuff like that really sort of, I think hit home for a lot of patients and citizens and even doctors like, oh, maybe I should actually be looking at preventative ways to make my patient, my patients healthier instead of just sort of waiting until like the shoe drops and then putting them on a statin or whatever. Like the stuff that we've been talking about for decades, all of a sudden is not such crazy talk anymore, right? It's like, no, you have to look a little bit deeper and and be preventative because you don't know. We don't know when something else is going to come around the corner. We just don't. I mean, we hope not, but I hope we'll be better prepared next time. Agreed. Well said. Heather, thank you so much. Congrats on the book, The Amino Thanks, Type Jason. Breakthrough. Love it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.